If you're staying here, we're going to continue with 1 Thessalonians. You can open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And um, last week we went through verse 12 and um, verse 13. And um, I'd like to just read that again this morning. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12 says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. And the first thing we saw there is that God is the source of our love, not just for the brethren, but also for those outside of us. The word used there for love is agape, which is the word translated as charity in First Corinthians 13, which we saw is how you pr- apply love, how you apply love, and that application, the ability to apply that comes from God. And like I said, we do not just love the brethren like the Pharisees loved those who, who um, only reciprocated love, but we love those beyond that, as Jesus told them in Matthew 5, to love enemies, our enemies as well. And through doing this, loving our enemies and loving the brethren, we fulfill the law of God. As it says in Romans 13 and verse 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so with this, this love that we have is the fulfilling of the law because there's no need for this um, almost legalistic approach to thou shalt not and thou shalt. But if you truly love as God loved, you won't have to have these set of strict rules to govern you because you're governed by the love of God. And so love is the fulfilling of the whole law. Let's read verse 13. To the end, so what is the purpose of this? To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And there also we, we looked at the, the, the theme or the idea that there is stability that God establishes you through the love that you have for the brethren. That is part of where we find stability in this Christian walk. We love, love is from him and to him. And the more we understand his love for us, the more we are able to be conformed to the image of Christ and ultimately love those around us. And also something interesting is that in verse 12 it says that you may love one, and, one toward another. And then it, in verse 13 it says, to the end you may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. And so we said that a practical way in which you pursue this holiness, this, to be unblameable before God, is the pursuit of brotherly love. So we pursue brotherly love, and through that pursuit, we become more like Jesus Christ. Now, for our text, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For ye know what commandment we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. So he starts off verse 1 by saying, furthermore. In other words, in addition to the admonition to pursue holiness and biblical love. So that's what he deals with in the previous chapter, verse 12 and verse 13. So he says, furthermore. So in addition to what this, this love and this holiness that I have admonished you to follow, he says, I beseech. That is to 
ask earnestly. I beseech is to ask earnestly. And it says, brethren, and to exhort you. And to exhort someone means to, to urge or encourage someone to good conduct. Some people say it's to animate someone. So it's to you going to a brother and urging that person, trying to animate them to, to, to stir up this love, this, this holiness that Paul wants them. So he says, furthermore, we beseech you. We urge you. That's the exhort. And then it says, by the Lord Jesus. So in other words, it's, it's not for Paul's sake. It's not by Paul's authority. It is by the authority of Jesus Christ and for Christ's sake. So he is saying that I urge you, I encourage you, I want to animate you to love and to become holy for Christ's sake and by Christ's authority. That is what Paul is saying. It's not for his own gain. Paul wanted these believers to experience the fullness of the Christian life as Paul experienced it through the life that he surrendered to God. And that only comes by serving God and not following man. And that is why he emphasizes by Jesus Christ. It's not about following a man. It's about this Paul who was sent by God and he speaks now by the authority given to him by Jesus Christ. And this is why he begs them and encourages them by Christ's authority to walk and to please God. So we see that further in verse 1. He says, after, he says, exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us, how you ought to walk and to please God. So why is he urging them? Why is he trying to animate them? Because he wants them to walk in a way that's pleasing towards God. That's why I say it's for Christ's sake and by Christ's authority that he is saying this. And he wants these people to live in a way, to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. Not just instruction, because he says there, you have received of us how you ought to walk. So it's not just an instruction that Paul gave them. That's not enough. He goes on to say that you may walk. It's not just the truth. It's not just the instruction. See verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, once again, it's not just the instruction. It says in verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. There's instruction. Paul gave them a lot of instruction, but he urges them to walk in a way that pleases God. Jesus said, as we read this morning in John 8, verse, verse 29, he says, And he that sent me is with me. See, there's fellowship. Why? The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always the things that please him. The fellowship that there is with God comes from doing or pleasing God. And that's why Paul urges them to, to please God. Because he knows that that's where the fellowship lies. As Jesus said, I do always the things. Not I know the things. I do the things that God told me. And because of that, there's fellowship as a result. It's quite simple. As John put it, he said, God is light and in him is no darkness. Okay? Therefore, if your desire is intimate fellowship with God, you will walk in the light as he is in the light. You can't have fellowship with God if God is light and you are living in darkness. And so fellowship comes from walking in the light. Once again, that word walk, it is a verb. It is something, not something you, 
No, it is something you do. And that's where that pleasing comes from. And that's why Paul doesn't just say, you received of us. That is the instruction. You know what to do, but are you doing it? And if you do that, you please God. If you do that, you have fellowship with him. So like this example I said, God is light and in him is no darkness. I'm pretty sure all of you agree with that statement. Okay? That is, that is the knowledge of that truth. Right? But that's not, that's not all that Paul wants. I like this quote that I read. It says, we often think that our knowledge of some truth and recognition of it in our minds is some sort of compensation of our non-performance thereof. We often think that our knowledge of some truth and recognition of it in our minds is some sort of compensation for our non-performance thereof. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. You received of us, now walk in it and please God because of that. Because like I said, knowing truth and living truth are two different things. We see a lot of people who acknowledge God in their minds, but live like there is no God. We see a lot of people who know that they need to change their life, but knowing you need to change something in your life and changing something are two different things. And so that Paul urges them to do what, um, to do what they know, what he instructed them to do. We know by Paul's own testimony in Second um, Timothy, this is the last book that Paul wrote. And in this book, he says a very familiar or, or famous few verses in Second Timothy 4 verse 6. I'll read it to you. It says, For I am now ready to be offered, and my time of departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all of them that love his appearing. And so we know from Paul's life that this ability to stay the course, this ability to walk in the way that pleases God, is possible. It does not mean that Paul never veered from the course. Okay? He says he finished the course. It doesn't mean that you won't make mistakes. But what it does say is, he always, when he veered, he repented. He always came back. He always finished. He always persevered. And that is a sign of a true believer. Someone who stays the course. Stay the course. And that's why I'm saying this is a, an encouragement to all of us is to say that Paul instructs us and then he urges us to walk it. And his own life is an example of that. It's not just doctrine it is look at my life as well and he stays the course and he finished it at the end of the day so do you have this mindset maybe today is a day that you can start applying the truth and the knowledge that God has laid on your heart perhaps the truth that you know that God wants you to repent of certain sin in your life perhaps there is someone God wants you to speak to Perhaps you know that you need to be a better spouse. Whatever the case may be, God lays that on your heart. Now that is the truth of Scripture that is convicting you of what you should do. But whether you do it is where the real fellowship, the real test um, comes in. 
So you know what God wants you to do. And if you desire fellowship with him, you will do it. Because you can't have fellowship with God if you're willingly disobedient to what he has shown you you must do. It's like a parent who, who, who has a teenage daughter or son and he instructs this child as to the way they should live and what they should do. But if that child is willingly disobedient to what that parent is saying, having a good relationship is very difficult. Yes, you may love the child. Yes, you care for that child. But fellowship, intimacy, that doesn't exist in that state of disobedience. And so if you're in a state of disobedience, you cannot have fellowship with God. He is light and in him is no darkness. At the end of verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, You have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God. And then he says, So ye would abound more and more. So Paul seems to be very, very pushy. He tells them to love, and then he tells them to love again. And then he tells them so you can be living in holiness. And from the first three chapters, we see that he speaks about their love toward one another, how he encourages them to be sanctified and to, to, to um, leave idols and to w- follow God. And we, we see this whole thing of sanctification, holiness, holiness, and the love for the brethren. We see that coming through. And now he says that you would abound more and more. So why is Paul so pushy? Why does he urge them to love more, to become holier? He exhorts them to walk in a way pleasing to God. And now he says more and more. Paul knows that all flesh is grass. Paul knows that every person, although different, has a sinful nature. And we all have similar weaknesses. We all struggle with sin. He knows that although these people were, were such an encouraging bunch of people and that they were zealous and on fire for, for the gospel and zealous and on fire to love one another and do what God wants them to do, he knows that a time will come where they can lose heart. A time will come that through the afflictions that they're facing and the trials that are coming their way, that they can lose heart. Not everyone is on a spiritual high the whole time and he knows that this church in this time is on a spiritual high. And he encourages them to the more and the more because we all grow complacent. We all reach sometimes in our spiritual walks where we're, we think that we have, we've been zealous long enough or we've done enough. But God, uh, Paul urges them to do it the more and more, not to become complacent. One commentator on this verse said, The Thessalonians, are, however, were walking as Paul had directed them. But he knew the tendency there is to be content with a half-completed course. To allow some sin to remain because much has been cast out. To weary before the whole work is, done, is accomplished. And therefore be, um, therefore be um, as bent upon having them abound the more and more. That's why he is so bent upon having them abound the more and more. Because we are... Co- Get content with a half-completed course and to allow some sin to remain because so much has been cast out already. And so we all struggle with that. We all, once we get saved and we've walked with the Lord a few years and it's like, I don't struggle with this anymore. I don't struggle with this anymore. I don't struggle with this anymore. So, so much sin has been cast out to, to almost have this small thing like every now and then you tell a small lie or whatever. It, it's almost we grow complacent with that state, and yet God is holier than we could ever imagine, 
So he says, abound the more and more. Don't stop pursuing holiness. Don't stop pursuing love toward one another. We have to abound the more and the more. Otherwise, we are at risk of becoming complacent with our state of sanctification. And then on this point, I just want to mention that as a body of Christ, we need each other. Because some people will find themselves in in afflictions, like the Thessalonians found, and Paul was encouraging them to, to abound. We know that Paul, when he was writing this, he found himself in some terrible situations as well. And hearing the news from these, these Thessalonians was a great encouragement to him, and that, that helped him to continue on his course. And so the one helps the other, and the other one helps that one. And so the weak brother is strengthened by the strong brother, and the strong brother um, is helps the weaker brother, and that's how it's supposed to work. Because Paul knew that there would come a time when he would be weak and need brothers and sisters to encourage him. And so this is the, this is the, the template that we see here, is one of the strong helping the weak and the weak helping the strong, and the brothers and sisters helping one another to stay the course, to remain on fire for God, and to keep, um, keep doing what is right. And so that is why we need a body of Christ. Um, you know, in, in, um, in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 10, it speaks about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. And then it says there at the end, the more as we see the day approaching. As the day of Christ comes closer, people are going to grow more lax and cold and complacent with whatever state of Christianity they have. And so we are to exhort one another. We are to help each other stay the course. And, that is, and it says that in the context of the body of Christ. And so I, I think the body of Christ is a very, very important thing to, to be a part of and to, to fellowship with one another and to have that support structure around you. Now let's get into verse 2. Verse 2. It says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Once again, I want you to notice that he is not concerned with pushing his own agenda. He says, what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. It's not about his little cult (laughs) or his little sect. It's about what does Jesus want? What does God want us to do? And so he speaks with that authority in mind. The commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. His point is not to give them a bunch of good ideas and rules from his own mind, but rather to direct their ways in a direction that pleases God. He's concerned for their spiritual well-being. That's what we read in verse 1. He's concerned with their spiritual well-being. He urges them because he, he wants them to please God, to have fellowship with God. And so these rules or these commandments that he mentions here are not for his own sake. It's for Christ's sake. And that is why he flows from this verse into verse 3, which says, for this is the will of God. Because anyone who wants to please God would seek, Lord, what is your will for my life? And that's why he flows into that. But before we get into that, I just want to show you a few things that Paul urged, or um, commandments, if you want to put it like that, that he gave these Thessalonians. So in chapter 1 and verse 10, Chapter 1 and verse 10, he tells the Thessalonians, and to wait for his son, 
from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. There's a commandment, if you want to put it like that, that he gives these people. He says, and to wait for his son from heaven. And this waiting, this looking to Jesus, this waiting for him is what gives a Christian hope. When things are rough, there's hope because Jesus is coming to restore everything. Regardless of what this life can throw at you, there is that hope. And also, a Christian who lives with Christ, the coming Christ in his sights, is someone who lives a life that is being prepared for that day. He's readying himself or herself for that coming of the Lord Jesus. And so he wants them to have that in mind because of the, just the great hope that it gives and for the, the wrath that we have been saved from and that it readies ourselves. We are, we are driven to become more like Jesus Christ because we know Christ is coming back. And so that's why he commands them to do that. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Something else he commands them to do. Chapter 2, verse 11, it says, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God you rece- which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God. Something else he commands them to do. Walk worthy of God. Look at um, chapter 3, verse 3. It says that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we were appointed thereunto. And I don't know if you remember, but when we spoke about this verse, we spoke about truth. We spoke about how Paul could have told them anything. He could have told them that when Jesus comes into your life, all your sorrows go away and everything is fixed. But he told them the truth. Even though these people just got saved, one of the first things he tells them is that trials will come. Afflictions will come your way. Because they hated Christ and so they will hate you. So this is the first, one of the first commands that Paul gives them. Don't be moved by these afflictions. Look at verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. He encourages them to stand fast in the Lord. Because don't be someone who is tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, right? Know the scripture. Study the scripture. It is the only thing that can direct your life in a way that is pleasing to God. And so he encourages them in this verse to stand fast. And you can't stand fast if you don't have a sure foundation. You need Christ. You need the scripture to have a sure foundation to be able to stand fast. And so stand fast is something else he commands them to do. Look at verse 12. He says, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Abound in love. Increase in love, not just to the brethren, but also to those who are not saved. Jesus said that um, by this they will know that you are my disciples. By the way, you love one another, right? And so we are to love not just we are to love our brethren and that is a sign of Christ or God's love for the world. And so he, he commands them to increase in love. Verse 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. One of the, so to the end, 
What is, what is the purpose of all of this? That you may be sanctified. That you may stand in holiness. That you may stand in a way that pleases God to become more like Jesus Christ. That is the, that is the ultimate purpose. That's the ultimate goal is our sanctification. Chapter 4 verse, um, chapter four, verse 4 speaks on this. It says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Have a look at chapter 5 verse 23. It says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray your whole, body, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is sanctify. Sanctification is the ultimate goal of the Christian walk. As you know, in Romans 8 verse 29, Whom he did foreknow, them he did predestine to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. And so Paul commands them in these things. And then chapter 5, from verse 14, there's a whole list of things. It says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And then the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, the God of the, your, I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that these are the type of commandments that Paul is referring to? This is what he's encouraging, exhorting these people to do. It's not a list of rules like the commandments. It is a, it's a way of life that pleases God. That is what he wants them to do. It's not a grievous burden to be borne. It's for our good and it's for God's glory. And that is the ultimate purpose. That is what gives you purpose in life, is pursuing what God wants you to pursue. So any Christian who is not in rebellion towards God is thankful for these guidelines on how to please and serve God better. If hearing this rubs you the wrong way, you need to question where you stand with God. Because if you read this and it gives you practical ways in which you can live that pleases God, it should encourage you. It should be something that, that lifts your soul and to say, that is who I want to be. That I want to be more like Jesus Christ and please the God who saved me from the wrath that I deserve because of my sin. All right, let's get back to First Thessalonians chapter 4. And... Um, Let's continue with verse three. It says, "For this is the will of God, even your sanctification." Now, I'm sure that all who seek to know God and to please God have asked a question in this line of, "What is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do?" And it's a very good question, but I think the answer is somewhat basic um, and a lot less, say, spiritual <laughs> than a lot of us 
interpret or think it to be. A lot of us have this idea that it is a, it is a mystery and that it's something that only the Spirit can reveal to you through some extra revelation that you know that this is what God wants me to do. And I don't think that this is what the Bible teaches concerning the will of God. I remember asking this question as a young Christian, and since understanding it, it has really, really meant a lot to my spiritual growth. It has really opened up a lot the way I view God and how he works with us, and that he is not this distant, I want to say distant being, that you can never know what he expects of you. And the will of God, God has revealed through his word. So firstly, what I want to say when it comes to the will of God is following the will of God is probably the most important pursuit you can have as a Christian. It's the most important pursuit you can have is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? It's the first thing Paul asked after he got saved in Acts chapter 9. So what is the first thing? What is, what, or it's the most important pursuit you can have. Look at what Jesus said. This is the way Jesus lived. He said in John chapter 4, verse 34, he said, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Jesus also said in John 5, verse 3, I can, have mine, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which sent me. Luke chapter 22, verse 42 says, Saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus lived according to seeking God's will. That is the way Jesus lived. We have the same example in the apostles. We look at Peter's life. In 1 Peter 4 verse 2, Peter says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Live to the will of God. Paul also spoke of it. We saw it in First Thessalonians. He speaks about the will of God in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. But in Ephesians 6 verse 6 he says, Not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Doing the will of God from the heart. John spoke of it. First John 2.17 And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Jesus spoke of it. Paul spoke of it. Peter spoke of it. John spoke of it. All of them had a desire to pursue the will of God for their lives. Now, don't you think it would have been slightly, I don't want to say unfair of God, but if he, all these people, all of us who know him, want to pursue his will, and he didn't tell us one drop of it. Wouldn't that seem unfair? <laughs> How can we pursue the will of God if it's not revealed? How can we have, if we have that desire, but God never speaks to us of it? So, the reason it is, or I'm not sure of the exact reason why people have this mystic idea of it, but I think it comes from over-spiritualizing Christianity, or over actually bringing in mysticism and things from the outside into Christianity and having this idea that we need to elevate ourselves to some sort of 
above naturalistic point in order to find what God truly wants us to say. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Have a look at um, Psalm 134. Psalm 134. So in Psalm 134, we read, oh no, 143, sorry, like, I am a little bit, what's the word, dyslexic, actually I hope I'm not, (laughs) Psalm 143 and verse 10, it says, Teach me to do thy will. First of all, teach me. Okay? Not show me. Not reveal to me. Teach me. Okay? Teach me to what? Do thy will. For thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. You see, it... it, it, Teaching someone something implies that it can be known. It implies that it is known, right? So it is something that God has revealed to us. It implies obedience, not new information. And not just the knowledge thereof, as we saw earlier, the doing thereof. Teach me to do thy will. And I say this brings us to an important divide that needs to be made when it comes to the will of God. God's will can be divided into his general, or say his revealed will, and also there's a hidden will, and then also I would say there's a specific will. So there are three dividing lines that I want to make when it comes to God's will. Now when we look at God's hidden will, a good verse on that is... Um, Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong unto the Lord, our God. So there's a hidden will. There's a, there are secret things that belong to the Lord. When is Jesus coming back? We know it's his will that he is, but do we know when? It's hidden, right? There's a hidden will of God. The secret things belong unto the Lord, but the verse goes on in Deuteronomy 29, 29, but those things which are revealed, belong unto us and to our children forever. So there's also a revealed will of God. There's a hidden and there's a revealed will of God. The will of God that is revealed is one we can study. It is the one that God wants us to focus on. It is the one that God wants us to do, to live according to what he has revealed to us. And then the specific will, I think of it as, when God's hidden will and God's revealed will combine. In the sense that God knows that you will become a missionary in so-and-so. But it was hidden to you until the point that it happened. But it was not exclusive and is not exclusive of God's revealed will. His revealed will brings you to a point where you can be used in his specific will. And when you are in his specific will, you still hold the revealed will. And so the specific will cannot exist, I want to say, separate from the hidden and the revealed will of God. And on the specific will, for you to be in Poch, 
might very well be that specific will right now for you in your life. That is, you need to focus on God's revealed will and trust him to show you the hidden will if he wants you to do something other than that or to guide you through his spirit. Now, unfortunately, we won't get much into God's revealed will um, today. I want to leave it because it's quite an important topic and quite an exhaustive topic. I want to leave it for next week. But I want to just read a bit further in verse 3 and finish off with that. Paul says, for this is the will of God. Okay? Now, this is part of God's general will or God's revealed will to us. Because it, Why? Because it's revealed. Even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. But just to get the, the idea of the sanctification, I want to read a bit further. It says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is an avenger of all such. And we also have forewarned you and testified, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but to holiness." Do you see God has called you to holiness? Do you see that he um, wants you to possess your vessel, that is your body, in sanctification and honor? Not in the lust of the flesh, not in the lust of your fleshly pleasures and desires, even as the Gentiles do who know not God. There's sanctification, your life. To be sanctified means to be set apart, to be set aside, to be to be consecrated for a holy purpose. And so that is what God wants you to be. He wants you to be set aside to love and to serve him. And that can't happen without sanctification, without your life being transformed to become more like Christ, to lay off these sins and to put on Jesus Christ. And that is what we are to live according to, is in this pursuit of sanctification. One of the primary components of God's will for our lives is sanctification. And that is why Paul gives them these commandments, not to rule them, but to guide them in this pursuit of sanctification. I like this definition. I'll read it to you. It's it's a definition of sanctification. It says the act of making holy, setting aside. But notice this. When God's grace, by which the affections of men are purified, or alienated from sin and the world, and exalted to a supreme love to God. You see, there's two parts. There is uh, your affections being purified and alienated from sin and the world. And then there is an exalted to a supreme love for God. And that is essentially what sanctification is. More of Christ, less of you. And so... I want us to end off with this sanctification because it's part of God's revealed will for us to become more like Christ. And the way this happens is, as Jesus prayed in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And in, um, in Ephesians 5, it speaks about there that you be sanctified by the washing of the water by the word. 
And so there's a sanctification that happens through God's word. And so I encourage you to, to apply yourself to dig into God's word, to ask God to reveal to you what it is through his spirit, what it is he wants you to do and to know. And that way you are being sanctified every day as you spend time in God's word. You become more like Jesus Christ and ultimately you please God and enjoy the fellowship that results from that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful um, portion of scripture, Lord. Thank you that um, there is so much to learn from it. Um, Lord, we ask that you would please help us to abound the more and more. Lord, that we would stay the course and that you would help us to, to become more like your son. Father, I, I know I speak for most people here, Lord. Our desire is to, to please you. Our desire, Father, is to enjoy the fellowship that, that comes from walking in the light and show us, Lord, if there is any darkness um, in us, any sin that we are holding on to, that we won't grow used to it or complacent, but, Father, that we would rather seek to um, purify ourselves and become more like your Son, walk in holiness and pursue love, which is the fulfilling of the law. We pray this not because of anything we've done, Lord, the fact that we stand here, the fact that we're able to open your word and understand your word and learn from your word and to know your will is purely because of your grace and the love which you showed for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.